0: Welcome to Commune, a global wellness community and online course platform featuring some of the world's greatest teachers. We are on a mission to inspire, heal, pass down wisdom, and bring the world closer together. This is the Commune podcast, where each week we explore the ideas and practices that help us live this healthy, connected, and purpose-filled life. You can check out our courses our community, and everything we do at onecommune.com. Okay, so today's episode is part two in a two part series on grief featuring my friend and commune teacher, David Kessler. Last week, I interviewed David and television personality, Liz Hernandez, about the inevitability of grief and the optionality of suffering. In his early career, David worked closely with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. In her landmark work on death and dying, Kubler-Ross famously codified the five stages of grief we experience after the loss of a loved one. Denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and finally, acceptance. In denial, by pretending the loss does not exist, we decelerate the emotional processing of the overwhelming pain. In anger, we feel free to express strong emotion, but without vulnerability. Anger, more socially acceptable than admitting we are scared, allows us to express emotion with less fear of judgment. In bargaining, we grope for some perceived semblance of control in a situation where none exists. We might ruminate over our interactions with the person we have lost, recall times that we may have said things we didn't mean, and wish we could go back and behave differently to alleviate any pain we may have caused. In depression, panic ebbs, the emotional marine layer burns off, and the loss is visibly clear. We often pull inward, recoiling into a cocoon of mourning. In acceptance, the pain remains visceral, but we no longer resist reality and cease our attempts to pretzel it into something that it is not. Now, anyone who has experienced this process of grief will note that it does not unfold in any form of linear fashion. We are tossed turbulently between these stages. We get stuck, break through and break down while slowly inexorably crawling towards acceptance. In his recent book, Finding Meaning, David weaves a sixth sense into processing grief, purpose. At the other end of sorrow's long winding hallway, there is a door which opens onto the opportunity to channel suffering into compassion, munificence, and the betterment of the human condition. On today's show, We are also joined by pianist, composer, and meditation teacher, Murray Hittery. Murray leads an interstellar musical meditation exploration called Mind Travel. It's amazing. Murray improvises on piano in improvised and unexpected locations, leading the listener into a state that is both aware yet out of this world. Murray is also a beautiful storyteller, and on the show today, he vulnerably shares his story of loss and redemption. Our Commune has recently launched a course with David Kessler called Help for the Hurting Heart. And you can access that course for five days for free by going to onecommune.com grief. And we will also be launching a walking meditation program with Murray in the coming months. So keep an eye out. I hope you enjoy today's show with Murray Hittery and David Kessler. My name is Jeff Krasno, and welcome to Commune. Murray Hittery and David Kessler, what a treat to have you both with me at the same time. Thanks for being here.
1: Thank you. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for having us.
0: Yeah, well, I consider myself among uh, the most fortunate to be able to work um, creatively with both of you and to count both of you as friends. Um, you're both doing such tremendous work in the world. So I'm just happy to be here. Um, this is a, a slightly different format than than I usually um take on for the podcast. And so it's an experiment, but I'm excited to dive in. And, you know, as we were talking kind of just before the big red button illuminated, um, we were talking about the, the potency of story and how um, oftentimes through the sharing of story, people feel less alone, like they can see their story or part of it in some other person's story and that can help us recognize our, our common humanity and in often cases heal. And um, so I bring that up in the context of this conversation because um, a few weeks ago, Murray penned an article for the Commune newsletter, um, which I'm very grateful for because he gave me a week off. <laughs> um, but uh, but I'm even more grateful for the the content of that article because it was... Um, incredibly vulnerable and, and, and moving, and um, it made a lot of difference. And I've gotten hundreds of emails in the wake of it um, with people that have had experiences that are similar or or adjacent in some way. So very grateful that you that you wrote that. And at the same time that that article was published, we were actually in Topanga producing a course, um, with David on grief. Um, David, as, as many of you know, who have listened to this podcast is the world's foremost expert on that topic. Um, and just kind of by synchronicity, these things were happening at the same time. So I thought it was, uh, worth the risk to, to deviate from the general program of the podcast and, um, and really talk about within the context of your personal story, Murray. So if you would be so brave and kind and courageous to uh, to share a bit of that story um, with Mario, which uh, I think goes back to many, many years to the time when you were 23, just last year when you were 23. <laughs> <You're> right.
1: <laughs> Sometimes I feel that way. <laughs> Um, yeah, you know, when you, know, you talked about story and the power of story and, you know, certainly when it comes to grief, I think there is such power in story because when we go through it and surely we all will go through it just by virtue of the human experience, um, it feels incredibly personal, individual, can be isolating and at the same time shared and communal it it kind of holds both sides of the spectrum um incredibly incredibly powerfully Um, and so through story we we not only understand you know kind of the what that happened um which is less important than how the person is moving through it and and what we can glean in terms of the the human the shared human experience because ultimately the thing that i struggled with most really um, obviously besides the, the sheer missingness, the sheer loss of not having my sister around, um, was the isolation, the, the, the feelings that I felt were strictly mine and kind of tore me away from society kind of created this bubble of an experience that I really didn't have visibility into how I was going to get back into the normal flow of things. You know, it's one thing to talk about it now, And I will share the kind of more details of the story, but we we share it now in hindsight and it kind of all seems to make sense. But when you're actually going through it, as I did, and as many listening have and maybe are right now, the the light at the end of the tunnel is not always very clear, if at all visible. As, As a matter of fact, for much of the time, it's not visible. And especially when you're dealing with complicated grief, kind of really sudden, tragic, unexpected, um, out of the natural flow of hist of, of of nature, kind of someone young, you know, who dies. So, just understanding that you can get through it, that there is a pathway, um, I, I think, is a powerful part of the storytelling, and and maybe one of the points of the storytelling, and and certainly why I'm willing to to share my story. If there's one person listening that is going through this now or will go through this, and in that moment, is just not sure where the other side is, and if there even even is another side, you know, getting through this. Um, my particular story happened fourteen years ago on a magnificent, beautiful, dreamlike um, vacation to South Africa uh, with my favorite person in the world, which was my little sister, twelve years younger, and we were having a glorious time with friends and enjoying the countryside off Cape Town. Um, we were all on a on a little motorcycle drive, um, kind of about eight or nine of us, and uh, she was on the back of a friend's motorcycle. And after a glorious day in in the country by the by the beaches, um, I mean, just we had the it felt like we had the whole country to ourselves. It was just incredible. Um, the wildlife around us, I mean, there were actual wild ostriches running beside us as we were riding. Um, and then, of, of course, there's moments from. Getting back to the hotel, there was just a freak kind of accident. Um, I mean, truly out of nowhere, not how these things usually happen. And um, both my sister and um, Eric, our friend who was riding the motorcycle, were killed instantly um, in just a horrific kind of moment. And uh, not only was I on the ride, but I actually saw it because I was right in front of them and and just saw it happen in my rearview mirror. Uh, as I was riding. So I immediately pulled over. And, you know, my heart rates going through the roof to see when what the condition is going to be. And as I got closer and closer and ran there, um, the reality just fully set in of how truly horrific it was. And, and, um, and then you're just your whole world stops in that moment. And, you know, everything fades out. And your attention becomes so hyper present to what's happening. And of course I immediately rushed over to her. And, um, I mean, it was obvious, you know, that she had, she had been killed. And, um, and so in addition to the, to the, to the death of my sister, there was also the trauma that I had to subsequently deal with of what I experienced. It, it wouldn't be a, dissimilar from what, you know, a soldier might experience of one of his, you know, buddies in, in, uh, in combat or something like that. I mean, it was, it was that. It was that vivid. And, and then there was immediately the responsibility of, okay, I have to deal with this now, right? I I don't, I don't get to kind of break down here. I got to actually deal with this. Um, and so there was arrangements to be made. Um, and first and foremost, I, I don't even know how it came to the top of mind, but I was immediately struck with, I have to tell my parents and, and I, I immediately put myself in their position. And if I were them, when would I want to know that this happened, right? That their only daughter had just been killed. And, you know, she was 23 at the time. So I said, well, if I, if, if I, if I were my parents, I'd want to know right away. And, uh, I just called them from the scene and, uh, you know, to tell them, and it was, it was the most excruciating, difficult call I've ever had to make. Um, and just hearing the primal scream of my mother on the other end was, you know, it's something that just kind of completely went, went through me and I can, you know, recall to this day. And, and then the series of events kind of unfolded from there. I, I then had to go back to the hotel, gather her belongings, pack her bags, and then fly back with her. Of course, she's now under the plane and and bring her back from South Africa to New York, where my family was. Uh, and then, of course, the whole process from there. Um, and so there was real unknown going into that. And, you know, again, you go through it alone, and you go through it with family and your community. Without the family and community, I can't imagine, you know, not having support to get through it. But even with that, there's so much to deal with and untangle internally. So that's kind of the 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 what happened of it,
0: yeah, yeah. Well, thank you for for sharing that. I I can't imagine that that's easy. Uh, to to continue to revisit that moment, and um, I would just say you know I've traveled that road. Um, I know how awe strikingly yeah. beautiful it is, and uh, yeah, I mean just all of the competing emotions. Obviously, you know, like you say, you're know, dealing with the situation and, and um, the loss, but also the responsibility um, in many ways, you know, um, and having, like you said, to make the arrangements, but also, you know, dealing with, you know, your parents. Um, and, you know, I know that you wrote in, in the article that in many ways, You tried to hold a lot of the grief for everyone. Mm -hmm. In in some ways, shield everybody from, uh, God, the sharpness of the pain because you were the one there. Um, And and taking on that responsibility must have been so intense and and, and so heavy. you know, I, I wonder how. Where did you go from there? Because um, I know for some time you were sort of the keeper of the pain, the the guardian of the grief uh, for for your family. Yeah,
1: it, it, yeah. It was it was a it was a decision I had to make at the time, which you know, because people were certainly asking me. You know, Jeff, as you can imagine, Floyd you know, the details of what happened. And I, I really felt like it wasn't going to help anyone to know the gruesome details. Um, like, obviously, the what happened of, you know, the accident, you know, sure. Um, but but I, I, didn't, I didn't think that was going to help anyone. And at the same time, I knew that I had to express it out of me because that trauma is, is just, it's just too much to hold in. So I did go to a grief therapist. I did get to voice it, um, but I got to voice it in a professional context, which, to be honest, I felt there was a missingness to that of sharing it with someone who knew her and someone who loved her and someone who, you know, knew me. And, um, And there ended up being one very close friend that was willing to take that on. And I felt like that was okay since it, you know, wasn't one of my family members. So that provided a tremendous amount of comfort to be able to express that to a really good friend of mine. I think holding it in absolutely is not the right direction. So I don't want people to get the impression that that was something I would recommend. Um, you got to get it out of you. you got to voice it. you got to write it. You have to, I mean, you have to. Release it from kind of taking you over um, and like any trauma you know it it has its course and it does dissipate and ease with time as it did um, but of course, I still remember every vivid detail of that. it just doesn't have the same charge as it once did, and I think that's an over an overall and I'm sure David can attest to this in in his in his experiences and research and patients and all the people he's encountered, you know, grief kind of comes in these waves and, and at first, you know, it's this tidal wave that hits you and levels you and flattens you. And then to the extent you can get back up, you'll, you'll get slammed again and back up and hit again. And the frequency is pretty rapid. And over time, the, the, the waves both diminish in kind of amplitude and in frequency. And now, you know, I could, I, you know, I get hit by a wave from the smallest little thing that reminds me of her. I'll get emotional. I'll tear up, but it might last just, you know, five seconds, and then I'll smile at the end of it, and I'll be like, "Oh, I just miss her. I love her," you know. So that's that's kind of the course it takes. So
2: Murray, you've you've said a lot there, and first of all, I appreciate you sharing your loss and love and your sister. Um, I want to bring up a couple of things, just sort of some of the theory to go with your experience. You know, I've talked to Jeff about this. I probably say it 10 times a day. Grief must be witnessed. You know, we're not meant to be islands of grief. And it's interesting. You know how Jeff said, I can't imagine what it's like to tell your story. Again, most people, and I'll ask you after this. Most people want to share their story. I mean, we're not asking people to revisit the trauma, but a lot of times we live in a world where people go, Murray's coming. No one mentioned the sister. And usually for the person in grief, not everyone, they're like, I don't live in a world void of my sister now in my spirit, in my mind, in my consciousness. I mean, I've lost parents. I've lost a younger son. You know, at a drop of a hat, you can ask me to talk about them, and I can. And how was it and how is it for you
1: all these years later to tell the story? You know, I, I fully agree with you. Um, And and certainly in the beginning, right, that was my experience, right? Just like you said, where, you know, people kind of feel like they're trying to tiptoe around you. They don't want to upset you. They 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 want to lift you up. They want to lift your spirits up. Um, but it's it's fully present. It's on your face. It's on your body. It's there. Right. In the early days, certainly. Um, so not talking about it is disingenuous and doesn't have authenticity to it. Um, so so that, that's absolutely correct. And just on that
2: note, there's a period that happens like six months to a year where the person begins to look fine. We don't see it on correct. their body the way we did in that first three months. And that's when everyone's like, don't remind him. Like, right. Marie forgot, let's not remind him he had a sister, which is so far from the truth.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, to that point, now when, when people I know uh, are going through grief, family members, friends, whatever, um, yes, of course, you know, I reach out right away and, and offer condolences and connect. But really, it's the period of time after, the month after, the three months after, the six months after, like you said, when things start to seem normal you know, on the outside, but it's still sitting there, you know, it's when the birthday comes up, it's when the anniversary comes up, it's when the holiday comes up and no one's at that point wishing them much at all. And that's when they're feeling it equally, if not more. And so I do my best to reach out at those times, because I know how that feels, you know, all those months later.
2: And, you know, it's interesting as someone who's written books on this and you know the book and now there's a course I can't tell you how many people say, oh, I wish your book was around when my friend was at the two week or the one month point. And I go, where are they now? And they're like, oh, it's been six months. It's too late. I'm like, (laughs) it's so not too late. A year is not too late. Two years is not too late. You know, it's like, but, you know, we have that illusion that there is an ending and a finality. And, you know, as you said, it's, it's waves, it's a process, you know, it changes all the time. And, you know, the other thing you pointed out that I think is interesting, you talked about the grief and the trauma. I always tell people, I don't know if you've heard it this way, I always say we're dealing with three things, the grief, the trauma, and the traumatic moment. So, you know, all grief does not have trauma, but all trauma has grief. And so for you, I would imagine in that situation, there's the grief of your sweet sister dying. There's the traumatic moment that you encountered. And then there's the trauma. That's the aftermath. It's interesting, like even now in our pandemic world, people go, I have post-traumatic stress over COVID. And I'm like, it's not even post yet. Yeah, we're in right. traumatic stress. Like we're not even at post yet. So right. part of the work that I'm sure you had to do was <clears throat> for you to get out of that traumatic moment to then deal with the grief and the trauma of it.
1: Because so that's, that's where we point. get stuck. And that's a great point. And, and there's a phenomenon that happens that I certainly experienced um, where once we can reflect on what has happened, okay, so it's happened, we're in shock, we kind of taken it in, and now we're 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 back home with ourselves, with our thoughts, with our reflections on it. Um, the way the brain works, you know, as you know, it's it's gonna start to layer all this meaning on it. And we're gonna start to interpret what happened in a million different ways. And that's when all these other emotions, you know, for me started to jump on the bandwagon they started to draft you know right behind grief and go along for the for the ride and that included you know guilt it included shame um, it included a whole host of of emotions that were were just jumping on and they all seem equally real there's no sense that it's not real that story that we tell ourselves about it the interpretation of it is extremely real and it's generating an emotional experience that's visceral and complicates the grief so as opposed to just purely you know grieving this loss this death this missingness um i'm now having to process like the what ifs and um i should have done this and i should have done that and you know all the million things that come along with that and by the way not eased in any way necessarily by um the interaction with others. There might be people in your life. They certainly were in mine that, you know, kind of felt a certain way that wasn't helpful um, when it comes to things like, you know, guilt and blame and responsibility and things like that. So it, it takes quite a presence. It takes quite an effort to take a step back from that and start to untangle that as Jeff alluded to um, during the Shiva, which is the Jewish uh, week long uh, morning period, where family and friends come together, very, very helpful and very powerful to have that communal grieving. Um, as you said, David, you know, kind of do it in sharing, like, like express that grief together. Um, during that time, someone visited and left kind of an anonymous paper bag. I don't even know who it was. And inside the paper bag that was left for me was a completely knotted and tangled ball of yarn, um, you know, with a simple note. And I I was just perplexed by this kind of strange gift of grief. And uh, I just sat it on my nightstand. And there was some days later when I had this realization, I'm just telling you now, which is this, you know, all these tangled emotions that I I realized I had to kind of, you know, take apart, pick apart one by one. Um, And then I looked at this, you know, tangled yarn the spool of yarn on my on my nightstand, I was like, ah, okay, I got the metaphor, I got the teaching. And and I just started to do that work of like teasing apart each emotion and addressing it, deconstructing it one by one, layer by layer, because altogether it was just way too overwhelming. Um, but one by one, I kind of looked at it, I said, well, okay, that's really not the case. No, that's not true. No, that's actually not true. No, this is not true. And suddenly you then distill it down to the pure grief, which at the, at the fundamental level is just pure freaking love. It's just pure love at the deepest level without all the nonsense and trash and garbage that the mind tries to you know, feed us. Um, and it was just so liberating to get there. It took a while, right. but it was so liberating to get there.
2: There's so much you said in that Murray that I want to pick up on. I mean, first of all, uh, it's interesting when we talk about meaning, which obviously interests me, the book's finding meaning, uh, is the idea that we, of course, hopefully in time, find meaning, but we also make up meaning and we make up negative stories of meaning. Oh, if only I had done this, if I had done that, she would still would be here. Why didn't, you know, on some level, you're a brother, you're supposed to be a protector, all those things, our mind makes up the stories around meaning. But it's so important that I think at the end of the day, you're able to distill this grief down to love. And it's interesting, I I, I said this with, you know, as I talked to Liz all the time, my other friend, just about, um, you know, pain from loss is inevitable. Suffering is optional. You there's the pure grief. That's the pure love of your sister. Then there's all the extraneous stuff, how she died, whose fault. Is it yours? Could you have prevented it? All those what ifs. I mean, how haunted can we be by two words? What if? Yeah. And it's such a natural part of grief to go through that.
1: Yeah. And I think part of, you know, when you asked me earlier, how do I feel about telling the story now? Um, it's the same way I felt back then and, and, and even now. I mean, for a while, for a number of years, the story, David, felt so sacred in the sense that, you know, her life was so unique, so special that I, I equated her death as being equally sacred and I didn't want it to fall on ears that weren't fully empathetic with it and cared about it, you know, so it, it, I, I didn't want to trivialize the story of the death.
2: Right. It's interesting you say that because I always talk about, and you said it so beautifully, being sacred. I always talk about share it with people who deserve the story. exactly, Exactly. And with the right moments. Yeah. And I always give the example, even with my younger son's death, I'm in the grocery store. I'm in the checkout line. There's people behind me. And the checker goes, David, how's the boys? That moment does not deserve the story.
1: Yeah, not the right moment.
2: (laughs) Or I'm at a party and someone goes, how's the kids? And of course, I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, you probably run into people who haven't seen you in years. How's your sister? And, you know, it's that moment, you know, I've learned we're about to sing happy birthday to someone and someone goes, how's the boys? And I say in that moment, fine. There's a lot more to that story. I'll call you tomorrow That's right. and just keep moving because the moment doesn't deserve the sacredness of the story.
1: And, and, you know, and, and then, and then when I was, was able to tell it and, and feel expressed about it, um, it is very welcome to tell the story because I think the one fear we all have, and I'd I'd love to hear your thought on it in your own grief experience with your son is the last thing we want is our loved one, my sister, your son, to be forgotten. So we wanna tell stories about them. We wanna tell their story, we wanna share who they were, give a glimpse into their character, into their quirkiness, into their passions, into their purpose, into their legacy. And if we are not talking about them, even the story of their death, then, um, then they're somewhat forgotten and, and start to dissolve. As long as we remember they live. Yeah.
2: You know, so I think it's so important to talk about them. And, you know, the talking is also the processing. It's processing the grief. If it's trauma, you got to process the trauma. You know, just someone going, okay, time to quit talking about them. Time to quit talking about the divorce, the breakup, the betrayal. I mean, we have to process what we've been through. And I think that's part of human nature,
1: so Jeff, on the heels of the article that I wrote um, for Commune, there was an interesting development that I'll share with you here,
0: hmm.
1: which was um, I felt like I had to let my family know that I wrote this article, this <laughs> quite you know this quite in-depth um, survey of my own emotional experience through grief and what I decided to do was um, we we have a, a group, you know, uh, family chat um, on WhatsApp, like so many of us do. And I sent a note and I said, look, I I, I wrote this article. Um, it's pretty in-depth. And if if you're in a place to read it, I, I would love for you to. Um, if you're not in a place to read it, there's no, you know, I'm not, I'm not forcing you to read this. And if you do decide to read it, you both either don't have to respond to me if you don't feel ready to do that or comfortable doing that. And yeah. if you are comfortable doing that, I really, really welcome talking about it. <laughs> so
0: <laughs> yeah. you know,
1: I kind of like lay that out for them, right? Just, just giving some freedom within that with no obligation and no pressure, right? And what's amazing is that, you know, look, my family, like I'm sure so many families listening, they're not big emotional talkers, mm-hmm. okay? They're just not. And it, it comes from my grandparents, and I'm sure generations past. It's just a way of being that is, you know, in, it's in the genes. And um, it, it's again back to what David said earlier: like, you know, we're gonna we feel like we're gonna trigger making the other person feel upset. So it's out of compassion, but in, in my in my opinion, it's somewhat misguided compassion. And but that's kind of the, the way it's been. On the heels of this article and 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 letting them know about it, I immediately heard from two family members. And I got on the phone with them right away and spent hours, Jeff, hours on the phone with them. And their immediate response was relief. They said, after all these years, I haven't been able to talk about it with anyone.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And like that just went through me. Yeah. Like it even, it even moves me right now. Like I'm, yeah. I'm just like, God, for 14 years, So many of us in the family have just been sitting on emotions unexpressed, and it enabled us to to talk about it more. And I'm hoping that continues to open up. But by the way, including my mother, including my mother.
0: Yeah, I I can resonate so deeply with that because uh, I saw the same patterns in my own family, and um, you know, my grandfather lost his daughter, my aunt. And, you know, this is somewhat, I believe, of a generational phenomenon, but his um, response to the loss of his daughter was obviously great internalized pain, but very externalized stoicism. Um, Exactly. And um, it wasn't I mean, he never uttered her name in public. And it it wasn't until this one particular day I would visit him in, in Southern Florida and he would, he really took great care of his own conditioning and he would wake up in the morning, he'd walk out onto this balcony, the sun would hit his face and he would do his little calisthenics. And I joined him one morning on the balcony and he was just staring intently out at the horizon and, um, and he put his hand on my shoulder, and he said, "It's Terry's birthday today," and but he was unmoved, and all I could feel was his hand convulsing on my shoulder, as wow. as, as if his hand was shedding the tears, but yeah. he was just unable to do it himself,
1: somatically uh, expressed through that through that simple yet. Profound gesture.
0: Wow. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was so intense, and I, I, I. It was only years later that I could actually, you know, put some brackets around the experience and, and understand it uh, more profoundly. Um,
1: David, if I can ask, David, if I can ask, how how do you choose to navigate this with your own family?
2: Give me a specific, since that's such a big question.
1: I mean, I'm specifically in in terms of, you know, how do you choose with such a profound tragedy? How do you choose with your own? Because you're the head of your own family, right? Right. So So let let me go. Let me start with the sibling loss part. Okay. So first of
2: all, I'd be curious. You were older when your sister died.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: My son was 21. His brother was 22. I mix that with what I've learned from sibling loss over the years. First of all, I think sibling loss is, they're like the forgotten grievers. You know, it's the only loss that we ever say to someone, were you close? Oh, because if you're close, I'm going to give you some compassion, but I don't want to waste it just in case you weren't close with your sibling. So it's a weird dynamic in that. The other thing to go more towards your question Is so many siblings over the years, especially younger ones, teenagers, you know, preteens, tell me of, and as they've grown up, they tell me later of what their teenage and preteen experience was that one, they had to be caretaker of their parent and how difficult it was to hold their parents' pain and grief. And how your parent is your rock, and to see your rock, your anchor, cry and suffer is dismantling to a child. Now, coming to your question, here's the thing that was terribly difficult for me, because I experienced this as the father mainly, like 99.99%. But also there's that percent of me that's the grief expert in the back talking. So there's times my son, my older son would come over and I did what I had heard parents do for years. I would go, how how are you? And then I would break down and I would cry. And, you know, the child comes away going, "You said, how are you? But after that, nothing about it was my grief. It was the parents' grief. And it was so hard when my son was visiting, I would literally go to the cemetery first because I wanted to give my grief time before he walked in so I could really say, how are you, and make it about him. Hmm. And I can remember the first or maybe second Father's Day, maybe it was the first, he came over. And literally, I was face down in pain in bed. And he said, are we doing something? Or are you just want to be here? And I wanted to turn to him and go, your brother's dead. There is nothing doable today. This is the most horrible day. I am a son whose father. And it clicked in me. Oh, my goodness. His father's still alive, and he's wanting to have a Father's Day. I need to get my shit together here. I got to show up for the living son. So, what do you think about that from your perspective? Did you,
1: as the sibling, as the son, did you deal with any of that? Yet you were clearly older. So yeah, so I, I, I was in my I was in my uh, mid thirties, uh, about thirty five. My sister was twenty three. Um, I have an older brother. I have two other brothers. There's you know it's four boys, and then the Girl was the youngest. Marielle was the youngest. So we all had this sense of kind of a, a paternal kind of a relationship with her. Um, and certainly twelve years older than her, I I really had this really big kind of brother, almost father-like relationship with her. Um, we were extremely extremely close, and uh, and that's why those feelings of you know kind of responsibility and guilt did surface, um, as you said earlier. Um, in terms of my parents, uh, you know, I, I got to tell you, I've never f- found more respect and love for them than watching their way of being going through that grief. I mean, I mean, I love them and respected them before, but the first thing my father said, I'm not a year later. like a day later, the first thing he said was, "As difficult as this is." We're going to get through this as a family together. Like that was what he said. And it, it wasn't cold. It wasn't overly emotional. It was matter of fact, from love, from a bedrock of family value that we get through it together. You don't splinter off and get lost in your own world. You get through it together. My mother, of course, internalized it more as any mother would. And to her credit, I'll say two things. And the first is, you know, my sister was a dancer. She was studying at NYU to be a dance therapist. She was a brilliant dancer, hip hop dancer. And while she could have gone on to places like LA and been in music videos, she was gorgeous and talented. She wanted to help people. And so she was going into dance therapy to use her talents to actually help kids. And she started her own school. David, at 18 years old, she started her own school to help young girls. I mean, to talk about the kind of vision she had. And after her death, my mother, for 10 more years, single-handedly continued and ran that school as a nonprofit, hiring other teachers, of course, and continued that school for hundreds of girls. So she continued the work of my sister, continued her legacy. You know how difficult that must have been for her to show up and see all these girls, and and, and to continue that, not you know knowing that my sister's not there. But at the same time, it did give her. It must have given her fulfillment and meaning, as you talk yeah about. talk about finding meaning. That's mm, amazing, right? right. And yeah. and then and then similar to your experience on those few days a year. You know, those few days a year, my sister's birthday, the anniversary of the accident, um, Mother's Day, my mother chooses to have her own time on those days. And we respect that. We're there for her. We come over. We're there physically, emotionally, but we know that she needs to internalize those days. And we allow that. We respect that. We don't force her out into the open. (laughs) Because she's so present the, the other 362 days a year.
2: Well, that's, you know, I always say grief needs dedicated time. Not a lot, but dedicated time. So how what a teacher she is yeah, that she funny. knows to function for the other 360 days.
1: Yeah. There's five days that she's yeah taking time for her. Beyond function. I mean, present. Right. And- Right. Positive and engaged, and she has her rituals. Uh, besides continuing the school, she uh, Shabbat candles. You know, in, in in Jewish tradition, every Shabbat on Friday night, we light candles. She lights an extra candle for my sister. Continuation of tradition and um, expressions of love.
0: Yeah. You know, hearing about Mariel as a a dancer and your mother's commitment to continue um, that tradition, you know, you you wrote something poignant in your article um, about grief. You said, grief is a dance with acceptance and resistance. And, you know, David in his work on his own, but also in in partnership with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, was very instrumental in helping to codify and helping people understand various stages of grief: denial, uh, anger, bargaining, depression, and inevitably acceptance. And I and but he's also been very articulate in expressing the fact that. These don't happen linearly, per se. (laughs) Uh, I can do them
2: in an hour. I can do them all in an hour. I'm sure you can do them. Check,
0: check, check. (laughs) Um, And this, you know, of the many, many emails that I mentioned that I got in response to your article, so many of them mentioned that particular phrase, that this dance of coming in and out of feeling strong, confident on top of it, and then also feeling um, overwhelmed. And just I think hearing that, that it's okay to sometimes still feel intense sadness. Um, that that isn't a, a form of weakness, uh, I think was really, really helpful um, for people. And, um, and, you know, I, I wonder for you, because you guys are obviously, uh, a family that is very influenced by the arts. Um, you know, Before as, we as, go there,
2: Jeff, I just yeah. want to say one thing on that. Yeah, please. I think the duality helps people. You know, we often are like, all right, should I be this or should I be that? I think resistance and acceptance is beautiful. I also talk about, you know, we're living between grieving fully and living fully. Mm -hmm. We're also reflecting at the same time we're trying to restore. So I think whenever like you bring up that duality, that it's not this easy acceptance and it's not this massive resistance, it's a tension between the two. So I just wanted to add that. So continue on, Jeff, into that creativity power, you know.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that. Um, yeah. I just wanted to probe uh, and hover a little bit about around the power of creativity and its relationship to, to grief and to healing. Um, because, you know, as, you know, your family is obviously one that's immersed in the arts and um, you're an absolute brilliant pianist and i would love for you to take a moment and explain how your relationship with music evolved during this time and how it played uh an instrumental role in in the process of healing
1: yeah you know when we were just talking about resistance and acceptance uh, and how the experience of that in grief can it, it really feels it literally feels as if so at times From the smallest thing, the rug is pulled out from under you. You know, we've all had that kind of experience, right? Where you you feel like you're on firm ground, solid ground, and then you're just, you're back on your butt. And it very much is like that at times. Um, You know, uh, my piano is right behind me, as you can see. And the piece that's on the piano, the score that's on there is um, a Beethoven sonata number eight, the Pathetique, famous Mm Pathetique, you've probably heard it. And you know, of all composers, Beethoven was the master of this—you um, know—tension and release. Right, you're you're kind of in the energy of the music. It's positive, it's driving, and then whew, he pulls the rug out from under you and slams you down, and and it goes to pianissimo, quiet, and and he builds tension again. I mean, uh-huh. he was masterful at that, and that's what makes Beethoven Beethoven. But music overall, and as a musician, part of how I got through my own process and healing, you know, was music. Um, As we discussed earlier, this idea of having to get those, those thoughts, those feelings, those emotions out of you. Um, You know, words are one way, whether it's through therapy or just talking to friends and family, journaling, these are all very positive um, ways to get our our emotions out. Um, But music is an extremely powerful way because sometimes no matter how hard we try, we just can't find the words. Some of this stuff is just so ineffable. Like, how could I really describe the, the feeling of loss? Um, it, 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 we can attempt at it, and those are all useful. But to ultimately get at the core of it, sometimes words just fail. You know, we say that when we lack the words, we turn to the poet. And then when the poet can't find the words, she turns to the, to the composer, to the musician to music. And and music can do that. It's the language of emotion. You know, most of our language is linear, right? So we put one word in front of the other and we create sentences, ideas, paragraphs, and we express. But these emotions that we're talking about here are not linear. Like as we just said, right? They're, they're, They're multidimensional, they're tangled, they're interwoven. And so you need a language that is multidimensional to express multidimensional emotions. And music is that it's both linear and that's what we call melody. And it's also vertical, right? It's got multidimensionality in terms of harmony, rhythm, texture, timbre, all of that. And so I would just sit at the piano every day and I would just start to improvise and play. And the improvisation was key because it was about my own subconscious, about my own emotions, just spilling out onto the piano. And um, little by little, those sessions just started to ease and open that kind of emotional gateway. I, you know, I would just, you know, tear up and, you know, have to stop at times and just cry it out. And and it enabled me to give voice to what I didn't have words for. And eventually, that became what I do out in the world. I completely changed my career. I went from being a technology entrepreneur which I love doing, but I always knew I wanted to get back to my music. I didn't know how that was going to, what that was going to look like. But this gave me the direction. The directionality came from this because I saw how healing it was for me. And it was something I was able to do on my own and move through it. And then I would start to share it with others. And even though they didn't have my experience, my Mm -hmm. personal details, they have their own grieving. They have their own healing on many levels. And that common human story is present in the music because it's abstracted. It's it's an abstraction, right? There's no lyrics that say, and my sister this, my sister that. I'm not giving the the detailed story in the lyrics. It's it's abstraction. And music takes that abstraction and makes it really personal.
0: Yeah. It it is amazing the universality of the language of music. Um, And there have been... Uh, Several studies um, done, you know, where they will amass people uh, from different uh, nationalities and ethnicities and they'll hook them up to FMRIs and they'll play different pieces of music. And it doesn't matter where people have come from, parts of their, everyone's brain will light up at the same time at certain parts and certain times when they hear some kind of music. Um, And it it is the phenomenology of that is, is it's sort of inexplicable. And I I think also the the polyphony that music provides is a mirror to one's own emotional polyphony, right? I mean, David very (laughs) articulately said that, you know, that pain or anger or joy and, probably and that these things can coexist and oftentimes in in some of you know in beethoven or in other music improvised music you will have different you know lines that are co-mingling that are expressing things that represent very very different kinds of emotions and it's, it's sort of a way to uh, uh, to create a container for the things that might seem otherwise dissonant, but actually go, go together.
2: Yeah. I love that line in Hamilton. Um, There are moments that the words don't reach. I'm like, yep, there's just moments. The words just don't reach. They just can't describe. And I think, you know, people find so much in music, art, you know, because look, at the end of the day, death is an ending. Death is decay. And, you know, creativity is rebirth. It's a beginning. It's starting again. It's it's so
1: many things that sort of give the yin to that yang. And, and to that point, David, why music for me is so powerful. And by the way, dance is similar in that right. these are the only art forms that only exist in the moment. Temporally. Right. And, you know, a sculpture, a painting might last, you know, thousands of years. Um, but the music disappears the moment it's experienced. And that I when, I when I realized that it became such a teaching for me because I, I it, it opened up the ephemerality of all things. And now I started to create this intimacy with death through music. And, you know, good music, like right, powerful music, music that moves us is, is music that plays with that tension, um, that tension and release, that anticipation, you know, kind of giving us something, not all of it, holding it back, then releasing it, then taking it back. Right. And that's what grief was for me. It was this right, resistance and acceptance, you know, dynamic. And music holds that and it, it celebrates that which is why we can have joy and pain in that melancholy um, kind of orgasmic experience of music. And it's just so so healing.
0: Yeah, my music teacher once said that great, inside every piece of great music, something is changing while something else is staying the same. Exactly. So you have these motifs that recur and that they're colored in different ways. It, it's such that that same motif can be interpreted a different way, even if it's the same exact note. So and, there and, is and, there.
1: It's, and it's that the thing that's changing. We simultaneously, I mean, this is so real for me. We simultaneously want it to remain the same, and we can't wait for it to
0: change. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, well, it's, I it's think you know, so powerful. Yeah, I think, you know, understanding impermanence, and by extension, death through the experience of of music, you know, I think, you know, can be very powerful. And one thing I've also equated between sort of deep emotion and music, when you talk about the temporal qualities of music, um, It's often very easy for us to identify with our emotions that say I am sad or I am fearful instead of I feel sad and I feel fearful. And I think once, um, you know, music, the notes that you are perceiving are really just transitory phenomena arising and subsiding from moment to moment. And guess what? That's what emotions are, too, but it doesn't always feel that way. It feels very easy to sink into this place of like, I am the pain. Uh, instead of, you know, this is an emotion that is arising. It is subsiding. I can witness it, but I am not it. And um, I think there's, you know, I, I actually engage in a, a meditation around music very much you know around those thoughts um but i find it to be, to be quite helpful Jeff,
1: you you couldn't be more spot on i i gotta tell you and david i'd love your thoughts on this i i was petrified in the in the going through the crux of my grief i was terrified that the the sadness the depression the the aura i felt i was carrying through life into life would harden and 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 solidify as that for the rest of my life.
2: Well, and that's so true. And that's why I think it's important. Um, you know, we have this myth, we think our feelings are final. You know, like, oh, I've got them. This is the next 40 years. Yeah. And it's interesting in the physical world that I hope we'll all get back to it at some point. In the retreats that I do, if you saw the retreats, and even in this course that we're doing with Commune, it was important for me to bring Paul Denniston in. Paul Denniston does grief yoga, and he does them at the retreats. And at the retreats, literally, part of it is dancing. Part of it is music. You know, we don't just carry these feelings. And that's why I said, you know, when we were doing this program uh, for Commune, the course about, I can't just be talking to everyone in their mind. I wanted Paul to bring us into our bodies because grief lives in our bodies and music and dance and creativities are all a release. Laughter. I mean, it's all a
1: release. Exactly. And, and I gotta tell you, that's one of the things that if I could share with, with with those listening, um, the, you know, through the experience of music, through like you're saying, David, this embodiment of the expression of grief and moving through those feelings, saying, I'm not. I am not those feelings. I'm not defined by them. I'm going through them now, but they don't define me. Um, I was able to not only not only get my life back that I was hoping and wondering if I ever could, but this idea that I actually got a better life back. And the, the levels of fulfillment, the levels of joy, the saturation of it, the vividness of it, um, the experience of everything is so much more heightened that I really got a, a a better life, more fulfilling, more joyous, more emotionally rich, more empathetic, more compassionate. And and as I said earlier, I, I, I shifted my life to doing music full time. And now I travel around the world creating, as Jeff mentioned, these mind travel experiences, which is what I did on my own going through grief in my own yeah. home, in the dark. <laughs> like, right.
2: like that's uh, it. i and... I have to drill into that for a moment. <laughs> yeah. One, this idea, I think it's important for people to get that our emotions need motion. You know, our emotions need motion. Exactly. And you're talking about your life now. Someone listening to this, I just want to drill into this. I'm going to ask you the question. That's the negative story they're making up. So pardon me for asking it this way, but it's what our negative mind does. Yeah. Murray, you having this amazing life, do you feel it's disloyal to your sister?
1: Yeah, that's the that's the question. And um and the answer is not only a resounding no, but it's that I feel like I'm doing her service in celebrating her life by moving forward this way. Absolutely. You know, David, when I and, and by the way, I think I think for a I think for a parent, that's a more loaded question. So I will acknowledge that. I don't want to, and I don't want to certainly glean over this question or dismiss it in any way. It's a meaningful, powerful question because it points right at the heart of, of, of the love that's under all of it. That if we do move forward and can smile and can be joyful, then do we not love them? And that's, that wiring is off, right? That's just not true. And and if we can sever that Um, conditioning, then there's liberation and celebration and more love to be had. You know, David, I ended the article and well, I don't know if I want to give it away, but I'll just say, okay, for those who haven't read it. But, you know, every time I sit at the piano, whether it's, you know, for an intimate group um, or at a huge theater, you know, with thousands of people, I come out on that stage alone. I'm a soloist. I play alone and I sit at the piano. The room is completely silent. There's an anticipation of the first note There's this beautiful tension that exists, this connection with the audience. And I take a moment sitting at that piano bench before I begin, I visualize my sister right at the other end of the piano, looking right at me through the strings, through the piano. And I connect with her. And then when I hit that first note, I just imagine her dancing right there on the stage. And it's just, it connects me. It anchors me so deeply. And it creates the purpose and the meaning and the message of the work of each note. And that's the intention that I'm trying to give to everyone. The aspiration is that maybe they could find some of that healing, some of that connection. You know, these tears are not sad tears. They're, they're like joyful and filled with love and missingness, And I welcome them. And I want to unpack
2: that for people really quick, a little more. That idea, you know, we think our job is to make our grief smaller. Our job is to really grow around the grief. And this idea of disloyalty has come up through my whole career in working with people in grief. And there is a subtle decision for each of us to make, not early in grief, not early in grief. Grief is crushing, it's paralyzing, life doesn't feel worth living. That's like grief at its core. In time, we get faced with a decision. There's different ways to articulate it. I used to talk to people about, do you live again? I know for me, with my own son, I had to really think about, does my son's death ultimately constrict me or expand me? And I know my son loved my work. He would never want his death to constrict it. He would want it to expand it. So it is that in time, fearlessly giving in to the expansion. That honors
1: our loved ones. Completely, David. And, and what makes it more difficult that the answer, to answer that question, what makes that more difficult is that, in a way, those around us would understand if we checked out. Hmm. You know, they would understand if we just live the rest of life half checked out. Because of how profoundly difficult, I mean, especially as a parent. And that almost gives our victim mentality an excuse, a comfortable seat to just sit back. And so that, I think it makes that question even harder to answer in a healthy way. And, and but if we do, the, the fruits on the other side of it, the, the increased love is, is truly, it's, it's overwhelming. It's overwhelming. Well, thank you for sharing
2: yeah. your sister with us today. Thank you thank so you much. Thank
1: for, for, for hearing it and listening to it. And, being with it and being with her. Thank you.
0: Thanks a lot for listening to my conversation today with Murray Hittery and David Kessler. To learn more about Murray, please visit him at murrayhittery.com. And if you'd like to access David's commune course, Help for the Hurting Heart, for free for five days, go to onecommune.com grief. And as always, feel free to email me at jeffk at onecommune.com or follow me on Instagram at Jeff Krasno And make my mom proud. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That's all from the commune for this week. My name is Jeff Krasno, and I am here for you.